guys, and welcome to the Moms and Murder podcast, a true crime podcast featuring myself, Mandy, and my dear friend, Melissa. Hi, Melissa. Hi, Mandy. How are you? I am doing wonderful. How are you? I'm good. You know what I've been meaning to check in with you about that I could have done before, but I thought I'd do it on the podcast. How is your New Year's resolution going? Skating. Um, It's going. It's going. You know what? It's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be. I'm not going to lie. It's January, though. It is January. It's still January. So I've gone out skating a few times. I've quickly realized that I'm way better at skating on a nice and smooth surface, which of course is everybody's preference. But it's kind of hard to find like really smooth ground to skate on. Even some of the skate parks that my husband and kids go to, like the pavement is like super bumpy for me. So I've am not as good when I get on bumpy ground, basically. So yeah, so we're going straight without falling. I can do some turns. Um, I can go like in a wide circle. So we're getting there. We're getting there. Yeah. It's all the basics, right? You got to learn the basics to be able to do the twirls and dancing. Yeah, I'm not dancing yet, but it's only January. So yeah, we're it's going. The journey Good. is going. Yes. Good. Okay. How's great. your New Year's resolution going, Melissa? How are the toilets in your the house? To- <laughs> <laughs> Cleanest they've ever been. I have skipped one day and I don't really remember what happened. I think I just woke up that day and was like, you know what? I don't really want to do any of this today. And that's not bad. One day for January. 18 days I've only given up once. Yeah. And uh, no, my I, bed's been I, made. It's been great. Yeah, I, I'm proud of you. I feel like cleaning your bathroom 17 times already this month is really above and beyond what what um, what I have done. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, me too, normally. Normally, I'm on the 17th day and I'm like, all right, well, somebody's got to get in here and do it. And I guess that person's me. So we've, we've come a long way. We're going to really take 2022 by the horns. And I can't wait for somebody to tell us in 2023. Remember when you guys said that you were going to take 2022 by the horns and remember what happened in 2020, like they do to us about 2020. But I still have hope. It's going to be a good year. It is. I can feel it. It's definitely we're off to a good start. Yeah. (laughs) All right. So it's not really often that we get a chance to talk about serial killers on this podcast. But the idea of there being people out there who prey on innocent and unsuspecting victims just for the thrill of it is something that captivates true crime fanatics of all kinds. According to the FBI, serial murder is pretty rare. Doesn't even account for a full 1% of all murders that are committed each year. The concept of serial murder has been around since ancient times, though, in all parts of the world. But the public fascination with it didn't begin until the late 1880s, and that was after the London killings that came to be known as the work of Jack the Ripper. Pretty popular true crime story. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a true crime fan, you definitely heard of Jack the Ripper. So then in the 1970s and 80s, news of Ted Bundy, the Green River Killer, and BTK sparked a renewed and much more intense public interest in serial murder. And from there, the true crime genre in the form of content to be consumed, really, um, that's when it was really born. Right. We've all heard of these more infamous serial killers, but this week we're going to talk about one that you may or may not have heard much about. It's a serial killer who got his start when he claimed his very first victim in Daytona Beach, Florida in the spring of 1994. It was on March 15th of that year when police were called to the scene of a brutal homicide at a Daytona area apartment complex. At around 7.30 that evening, a man called and told police that he had just found his friend, 59-year-old John Hardy Roberts, dead on the floor in his living room. It was clear that John had been the victim of a vicious attack. The chaos around the room told the story of what may have happened. It appeared that John had been sitting on the couch when someone came up from behind him and assaulted him with a square metal lamp base. 
Other signs pointed to a struggle that ended when John's attacker got on top of him and strangled him to death. After John was dead, his killer stuffed a rag inside of his mouth and then went through his pockets, stealing his wallet and keys. The fact that John's car was missing suggested that the killer had fled in the vehicle following the murder. Officers didn't find any evidence of forced entry into the apartment, but the signs of a struggle in the living room and John's missing car led the police to believe that he'd been murdered and his killer was on the loose. Investigators spoke with neighbors and learned that John, who was an insurance agent, recently invited a man to stay with him as a roommate. Officers then searched through the apartment looking for anything that could be belonging to this roommate that might have his name on it or something more specific to go on. They found paperwork for probation inside the apartment that had the name Gary Bowles on it, so officers immediately started looking for Gary. At this point, Gary wasn't necessarily a suspect, but officers wanted to talk to him to be sure. But, surprise, surprise, this Gary person was nowhere to be found. An autopsy of John Roberts' body showed that John died from blunt force trauma combined with asphyxiation. His neck was fractured in an apparent strangling. Since his wallet had been taken, they started tracking the activity on his credit card and debit cards, hoping that it would lead them to Gary or at least to whoever had these things. On the night of the killing, it was found out that Gary attempted to use John's ATM card at around 10.30 p.m., but was unsuccessful. He did manage to successfully use John's credit cards, though, between Florida and Tennessee. On March 25th, the police finally tracked down John's stolen car. It had been abandoned in Nashville, and for the time being, the trail on Gary Bowles dried up. But things were just getting started in this investigation into exactly what happened to John Roberts and the whereabouts of Gary Bowles. Gary Bowles was a man who had grown up under really unfortunate circumstances. He was born on January 25, 1962, in Clifton Forge, Virginia, to parents William and Francis. His father died of black lung before Gary was even born. He was a coal miner for a living. Gary's mom ended up remarrying, and things were good for the family for the first six or seven years of Gary's life, up until his stepfather began abusing him. When Gary's mom learned about the abuse, she divorced this man and later got married to a third man named Chet, but Chet really wasn't any better. He was physically and mentally abusive towards Gary and his mom. He would beat Gary with belts and with his fists, and he physically abused his mom while Gary looked on. His mom was actually abused so badly that she was hospitalized multiple times. Mm. For five years straight, Gary was beat by his stepfather on a daily basis. By the time Gary was 10 years old, he was experimenting with drugs and alcohol. In his younger years, he would sniff glue and huff paint, and he later struggled with alcohol abuse, which was something that occurred frequently in his family. Many of them actually suffered with alcoholism. When Gary was 13, he and his brother decided that they had enough of being physically abused by Chet, and the young boys decided to do something about it. They got together and came up with this plan. They beat Chet with a rock until he nearly died. And Gary told his mom that at this point, she needs to choose between Chet and him. His mom, unfortunately, chose Chet, and Gary left home and never looked back. He really had felt like his mom abandoned him. After Gary left home, he stopped going to school and he lived on the streets. He resorted to hitchhiking to get where he wanted to go, and it was through this that he was introduced to the world of sex work. 
The very first man who picked Gary up for hitchhiking ended up offering him money for sex, and Gary agreed. And Gary would go on to continue doing sex work for the next 18 years. It was soon learned that Gary had been no stranger to law enforcement in the years that were leading up to John Rogers' murder. Between 1981 and November of 1994, he was arrested at least 14 times in the state of Florida. On September 27, 1982, Gary was arrested in Tampa and later convicted of sexual battery and aggravated sexual battery and was sentenced to three years. On June 4, 1982, Gary had been living with his girlfriend for about a month when he suddenly attacked her that night while they were drinking and smoking marijuana. She had numerous injuries but was too intoxicated to really remember the attack fully. Gary was released on probation in December of 1983. In November of 1987, Gary found himself back behind bars after violating his probation. He was then taken to jail and released again in April of 1990. Several months after his release, Gary committed grand theft of a motor vehicle. In 1991, he committed grand theft of another item worth less than $20,000. That same year, he committed a robbery in which he pushed a woman down in order to steal her purse. He was given a sentence of five years for the grand theft and four years for the robbery, but he was released in 1993 and placed on probation yet again. At this point, he moves to Daytona Beach where he lives with another girlfriend. Once in Daytona, Gary continued to work as a sex worker. His girlfriend did not approve of this and when she found out, she broke things off with him. Additionally, this same girlfriend got pregnant and secretly had an abortion. And when Gary found out about this, he was greatly upset and he took it really hard. He blamed gay men for this downfall of his relationship with this woman. At some point in 1993, Gary began frequenting local gay bars where he would play the field, looking for someone he could take advantage of in some way, whether it be sexual favors or just a place to stay. But he would only stay with them for a little while. And when he was ready, he would kill these men and then rob them. John Hardy Roberts was just the first in a string of murders that would eventually be committed by Gary, all while the police were actively searching for him. While officers worked to figure out where Gary had fled to after murdering John, Gary was busy planning his next move. Unbeknownst to the officers, Gary had made his way all the way up to Washington, D.C., and had set his sights on his next victim already. It was April 13th, about a month after John Roberts' murder in Florida, when Gary struck up a conversation with David Jarman, a 39-year-old man he met at a gay bar in Washington, D.C. Witnesses saw David leave the bar with Gary, only to turn up dead the next day in his home in Silver Spring, Maryland. David Jarman had been strangled and beaten to death. His driver's license and credit card were stolen and used by Gary to book a hotel room in Baltimore. If it weren't for the fact that Gary actually gave them an old address of his own, the police may have never realized that he was connected to David's death at all. Gary apparently spoke in Spanish to the motel staff and said that he was from Alexandria, Virginia, so just trying to throw off everybody. On April 20th, David Jarman's car was found abandoned in front of a bar in Baltimore, and just like that, Gary was gone again. Traveling south on I-95, Gary found himself in the beautiful city of Savannah, Georgia. On May 4, 1994, Gary went to a local bar and scouted the place out. He spotted an elderly man there and struck up a conversation. This particular man was a disabled World War II vet who had suffered a shrapnel wound in the war and later underwent a lobotomy. 
He was known around Savannah as a kind, gentle old man who liked to feed the pigeons in the park and help his family with their little locksmith business. At the end of the night, Gary offered to give the 72-year-old man named Milton Bradley a ride home, which he happily accepted. But Gary didn't take Milton home. Instead, he took him to a nearby golf course where he used an old toilet to beat Milton to death. Oh my gosh. I, this one, I guess because Milton was elderly that, you know, that really is like my, that's where I yeah. start getting really upset. I'm like, why? Like this poor man. Like this In is the like- matter of doing it, like to use an old toilet, it's just such a, I don't know. It's just making a terrible situation somehow worse. worse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once the murder was committed, Gary shoved leaves and dirt down Milton's throat and then returned to the same bar that he had just left from by himself and that was after being gone for just about 30 minutes to an hour milton's body was found the following day behind a utility shed near the golf club he had also been strangled and robbed an autopsy later revealed that milton also suffered broken bones in his neck and we're going to get into more of this story after a quick break to hear a word from this week's sponsors You guys have heard us talking about Monk Pack recently, and that's because they are absolutely delicious. Monk Pack offers low-sugar, keto-friendly bars, which are plant-based, gluten-free, and non-GMO, making them the perfect snack for anyone trying to eat better or just cut down on their sugar or carbs, but still looking for something they'll actually enjoy. I mentioned last week that I bought a case of the Coconut Almond Dark Chocolate Keto Nut and Seed Bars, and a light bulb really went off as to why I love them so much. They actually taste exactly like one of my favorite classic candy bars, but made from simple ingredients with no high-intensity sweetener or weird aftertaste that you usually get with low-sugar items. Monk bars are like a decadent dessert with chewy texture and delicious flavors like sea salt dark chocolate, coconut cocoa chip, and caramel sea salt. They are great to throw in your bag and eat on the go or as a snack in between Zoom calls or right before bed. There's never a bad time to eat a Monk bar. Get 20% off your first purchase of any Monk Pack product by visiting monkpack.com and entering our code MOMS at checkout. To get started, just go to monkpack.com, that's M-U-N-K-P-A-C-K.com and select any product, then enter the code MOMS at checkout to save 20% off your purchase. Monk Pack is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll exchange the product or refund your money, whichever you prefer. There's never been a better time to take care of yourself than now. Whether something in your life is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals, the licensed professional therapists with BetterHelp want to help you become the best you this year. BetterHelp is professional counseling that you can do right from the comfort of your home through weekly video or phone sessions. I've used BetterHelp over the past few years, and I can't tell you what a relief it is just to get all my thoughts out to a professional without having to leave the house. Dealing with anxiety and depression means that sometimes I just need to be able to talk through different scenarios with someone or just need help working through an immediate life problem that pops up, making BetterHelp invaluable to me. Of course, anything you share with your BetterHelp counselor is completely confidential. And best of all, BetterHelp is more affordable than traditional offline counseling. Financial aid is also available. 
Whether you're struggling with family issues, sleep, stress, or more, BetterHelp will match you with your own licensed professional therapist and you can start communicating with them in under 24 hours. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. We want you to start living a happier life today. As a listener, you'll get 10% off your first month by visiting betterhelp.com moms. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot moms. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking more about Gary Bowles. And at this point in the story, he's already killed three people and he's still on the run. I don't know if you would even count it on the run. I just feel like he's just going from place to place. He's just going, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't seem like he's so much on the run. Um, But about a week after Milton was killed, a 47-year-old Atlanta man named Alverson Carter Jr. was found stabbed to death with a towel shoved down his throat. Days later, on May 18th, it appeared as though Gary was back in Florida. On May 19th, concerned co-workers and family went to check up on 37-year-old Albert Morris after he didn't show up to work. His family went to his house and found him dead and noticed that his wallet and his car were missing. The car would turn up abandoned in Jacksonville just three days later, but there was still no sign of Gary. After investigating this Jacksonville murder, police learned that Gary had met Albert at a bar. Gary told Albert that he was a construction worker named Joey Pearson. Albert befriended him and even offered him a place to stay in exchange for helping do some work around the place to fix it up. On May 18th, Gary and Albert got into a fight outside of a bar because Albert said that Gary wasn't holding up his end of the deal and wasn't working on fixing anything at his house. These men continued to argue all the way back to Albert's house. At some point, Gary grabs this candy dish and hits Albert over the head with it. A struggle ensues and Albert's able to retrieve a knife and he starts threatening Gary with it, but Gary managed to wrangle the knife away from him. Then Albert goes and gets his shotgun, but Gary was quick and he grabbed the shotgun from Albert and shot him with it. He then strangled Albert and tied a towel over his mouth. After killing Albert, Gary uses his credit card to buy gas and clothes at Walmart. Up until this point, Florida authorities who were investigating this Daytona Beach murder of John Rogers had no idea that their suspect had been on a killing spree along the East Coast. Gary was later dubbed the I-95 killer because most of his victims were found near Interstate 95. When Jacksonville police were investigating the murder of Albert Morris, they tried to track down Joey Pearson, which was this fake name that Gary used to lure Albert, but they quickly realized that Joey Pearson was just an alias. The more they investigated, though, it became clear to them that Albert's murder was very similar to the murder of Milton Bradley in Savannah. So the Jacksonville Police Department reached out to the Savannah Police Department, and both agencies contacted the FBI to get involved. In early June of 1995, the FBI put out an alert about the murders, and from there, other East Coast Police Departments started looking over their cases to see if any matched the M.O. of the murders in Jacksonville and Savannah. And that's when the Daytona Beach police realized that other city's police agencies were looking for someone that matched the description of the man they had been looking for as well. It's so crazy to me how how these things end up, you know, coming around and working out like that. Right. And, and we're talking in the 90s. <laughs> in the 90s. Things right. are so different. But, you know, the database is all different and they're kind of just, you know, picking each other's ear to to find some of this information out and to see that it's coming together. It's it's amazing 
So when the Daytona police realized this, they contacted the FBI to say that they too had this similar murder that they had been trying to solve. It was determined that whoever killed John Roberts in Daytona was the same person who killed Milton Bradley and Albert Morris. The Daytona police also had another vital piece of information. They had the real name of their suspect because, remember, they had found this probation paperwork with the Mm. name Gary Bowles on it. But the authorities in the other cities didn't have a name to work with aside from these aliases that they had discovered. Gary's name and information was put on the FBI's most wanted list. More police departments started contacting the FBI, which led them to connecting Gary to the murders of David Jarman and Elverson Carter. Those were the victims from Washington, D.C. and Atlanta. In June of 94, the Baltimore Police Department started going around the local gay community showing mugshots of Gary to see if anybody recognized him. They said that he was clean-cut, smooth-talking, and passed himself off as a construction worker or a sex worker in order to meet victims in gay bars. Meanwhile, the FBI and local police had no idea that Gary was living right there in Florida, right under their noses. He was actually still in Jacksonville, living on the streets, working odd jobs, and frequenting bars. For several months, things went quiet, and there were no more murders that matched Gary's M.O. The story eventually faded out of the media, and people kind of moved on. But Gary's thirst for killing wouldn't be subdued for too long. While he was living on the streets of Jacksonville, a floral designer named Jay Hinton came up to him and asked him if he would be willing to help him move some furniture, and in return, Gary could stay with him for a few weeks. So Gary helped Jay move some of his personal items from Georgia to his home in Jacksonville, and then Gary started living with Jay. This arrangement worked for a while, but eventually Jay got tired of it, and he kicked Gary to the curb. So during all of this, because Gary, of course, doesn't want to go quietly. He's not just like, okay, I'm going to move out and leave. So, you know, it kind of starts a little bit of um, an altercation. So Gary ends up getting arrested. Of course, he's not arrested under the name Gary. He's arrested under a fake name. But then two weeks later, he was able to get himself back into Jay's good graces and he moved back into his house. So Gary... They are looking for him for multiple murders, gets arrested under an alias, and does not get found out that it's actually him, gets released back into the public. That is so crazy to me to think like, oh my gosh, the FBI is looking for this guy, and he literally gets arrested and goes to jail and then is like back living on the streets two weeks later. That's just like, oh my gosh, mind-blowing. Yeah. So a couple of weeks went by, and everything was fine. But on November 16th, 1994, things took a deadly turn. Jay invited another friend of his named Richard to come over and hang out. Gary joined the two of them for an evening of drinking beer and smoking marijuana. And when it was time for Richard to leave, Gary decided that he would ride along with Jay to take his friend to the train station. On the drive to the train station, Gary continued to drink at least six beers. He was really, really intoxicated by the time they arrived at the train station to drop Richard off, and at that point, it was only 7.30 in the evening. When Gary and Jay got back to the house, Jay went ahead and went off to bed, but Gary stayed awake and kept drinking in the living room. Then, Gary was struck with the horrific but familiar urge to hurt Jay. At some point in the night, Gary went outside and dug up a 40-pound concrete stepping stone and brought it inside the house. After thinking for a few minutes, Gary took the stone into Jay's room where he was sleeping. 
And then, for no reason at all, Gary held this heavy stone over Jay's head and dropped it, causing a fracture that extended from Jay's right cheek to his jaw, leaving Jay absolutely stunned. He fell off the bed and struggles briefly with Gary before being strangled to death. Gary then wrapped Jay's body in sheets and blankets and hid him in the bathroom. Next, in his highly intoxicated state of mind, Gary takes Jay's watch, his car keys, stereo equipment, and his car. He first drove to a liquor store to buy more booze, and then he picked up a homeless woman named Jennifer and brought her back to Jay's house. This woman was suffering from pleurisy, and Gary wanted to get her out of the bad weather, but at some point he took her somewhere else and dropped her off before going back to Jay's house alone. Gary was seen driving Jay's car in the three days immediately after his death, but it wasn't until five days later that anyone suspected something was wrong with Jay. Jay's sister sounded the alarm after Jay didn't answer his phone calls or come to the door several days in a row, so she and her fiancé ended up breaking into his house, and that's how they found out he was dead. It was determined that 42-year-old Jay died of asphyxia, but he also suffered five broken ribs and multiple abrasions on his arms and legs. There was no brain damage sustained by the concrete stone hitting his head, which showed that Jay was not rendered unconscious after being hit with it. The medical examiner believed that Jay was strangled to the point of death or unconsciousness, and then toilet paper was shoved down his throat. What investigators learned was that a man named Tim had been living with Jay. They didn't have his last name, but they wanted to try and find this Tim to see if he knew anything about Jay's death. At this point, police aren't even thinking about Gary Bowles or connecting these dots because it's been months since Gary was mentioned in the media, and he'd really all but been forgotten. So an officer used the first name of Tim and a few other details to search for recently arrested men in the area, and that's when he found the name Tim Whitfield. After talking with street informants, the officers found out that Tim Whitfield had rented a rooming house and was working temp jobs. On the same day that Jay's sister discovered him dead, which was November 22, 1994, Officer Robert Cook received a call from an informant who told him that Tim Whitfield was at the Ameriforce Job Center trying to find work for the day. The police then went to the center to arrest Tim so they could question him about his roommate's death. They were able to apprehend him without incident and brought him in. After about an hour of talking with Tim Whitfield, officers got a big surprise. Tim confessed that he wasn't using his real name. His real name, he told them, was Gary Bowles, of course. He was the Gary Bowles from the FBI's most wanted list, right there in the flesh in front of them. The police worked to verify that he was telling the truth, and it turned out that he was. Gary told officers how he came to adopt the Tim Whitfield identity. He said that when he killed Albert Morris, this is actually really interesting. So he is telling them, yes, when I murdered this man, Albert Morris, I found a bunch of documents for Tim Whitfield in Albert's trailer. So he said that he found an ID card, a birth certificate, and a social security card with this name Tim Whitfield on it. And he was like, hey, this is perfect. I need an identity. So he took that stuff. Um, So the police didn't believe him at first, but then Gary showed him, uh, showed the police all the documents that he had, you know, for this person, Tim Whitfield. Gary told the officers that he actually had served a five-day jail sentence for a traffic offense under this alias, and he just did that because he didn't want to give up the alias. So he was like, I'm just going to serve the sentence under this name because I want to keep this alias, which is like 
also crazy, but probably smart because I don't think new identities like that are really easy to come by. Right. With a social security number, birth certificate, you have everything. If you're just staying five days or getting caught for multiple murders, you probably just buy your time with the five days. Take the five days. Yeah. Gary had also used this alias for multiple recent arrests for minor infractions. And as I said before, it is just mind-blowing to me that the police had arrested him more than one time while the FBI is actively looking for him. And they just had no idea that he was was on the FBI's most wanted list. And this is obviously a different time, right? And, like, they didn't have fingerprints of Gary, you know, or of these aliases to kind of match and, like – put all the pieces together so it didn't come together as quickly as it may have you know today right right was it like a national database like we have right now right during his interview with investigators gary confessed to murdering six men in total they were john roberts david jarman milton bradley alverson carter jr albert morris and jay hinton gary told the police that he was glad he got caught because now these killings would stop He said that he started his killing spree after his girlfriend that we mentioned before went behind his back and aborted their baby and then left him. When he was asked why he put things in his victim's throats, he said that it was so if they regained consciousness, they wouldn't be able to breathe. So realizing, you know, the police are talking to him and they're putting all this information together and they're realizing that Gary's victims were all gay men. Um, The investigators asked Gary if he himself was gay, and Gary said no, that he wasn't gay. He said that he was just, quote, a hustler who, quote, just lived off these people, end quote. Gary wouldn't give a yes or no answer as to whether or not he had any female victims. Uh, He always would change the subject when that was brought up. But when it came to talking about the men that he had killed, he was happy to do so. He did so in almost a boastful kind of uh, Mm -hmm. manner. And we're going to get into the rest of the details of this story after one last break to hear a word from this week's sponsors. If you're looking for a way to save a little time in the morning while also giving yourself an easy glow up, check out Luminous. The new Luminous Breeze cordless airbrush system is a revolutionary, touchless way to put on foundation that is not only fast, but it's also super simple. There's no sponges or brushes. It literally goes on with air, and it's made for everyday use. Luminous's advanced foundation's unique formula combines an anti-aging serum, primer, concealer, and foundation, so I don't need to put on five different products to get beautiful coverage. The Breeze Airbrush is handheld, cordless, and rechargeable, so it's always ready to go with you. But this isn't like those other makeups where you need to touch it up all day. This is 18-hour wear, and it's designed to work with all skin types and skin tones. I was a little worried when I first tried it that it would look cakey just being new to airbrush makeup, but it looks amazing every time. And thanks to the spraying mist, it actually feels cool and great going on. I don't have a lot of time to get ready in the mornings, so a lot of times I'll just use my Luminous Breeze Cordless Airbrush, add some mascara, some lip gloss, and head out for the day. My skin tone looks even, and with 18 shades, you'll be able to find the perfect shade for your skin. And Luminous is so confident that you'll love their product that they offer a 100% shade match guarantee. So if your shade doesn't match, they will replace it for free. Plus, you get to try it at home for 30 days, and if you still don't love it, you can return it for a full refund. Whether you're updating your beauty routine because you're heading back to the office or just looking for a better, faster way to put on your foundation, we've got good news. 
Right now, if you go to breezeairbrush.com moms, you'll receive 50% off their airbrush makeup system plus free shipping. And because you're a listener, there's a special free gift included just for you. That's 50% off plus free shipping when you go to breezeairbrush.com moms. Don't forget, you get 30 days to experience airbrush in your own home or send it back for a full refund. Getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit is another reason banking with Capital One is one of the easiest decisions in the history of decisions, even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. It's been a while since I've had a baby of my own, and some days I miss it so much. The baby cuddles and baby smiles, but when it comes to diaper rashes, not so much. I remember the first time my oldest had a diaper rash, I was really devastated. Here's this tiny thing totally dependent on me, and now she's fussy and obviously uncomfortable, and I'm supposed to have the answers. Well, with time and treatment, it went away, but what I really wanted was to avoid it altogether. And now, baby butts rejoice. New Huggies Skin Essentials are here, a brand new dermatologist-approved line of diapers, wipes, and pull-ups training pants, all designed with baby's sensitive skin in mind. The wipes are thick and have zero harsh ingredients for a great, gentle clean. Pull-Up Skin Essentials has got your big kid covered, too, with a training pant that's ultra-soft and breathable to help protect sensitive skin throughout potty training. Whether you're a first-time parent or a seasoned pro, make it easy on yourself and your baby with Huggies. Learn more at Huggies.com. Once again, head to Huggies.com to learn more. And now back to the episode. So before the break, we were talking about Gary sitting down with police and, you know, kind of laying it all out, talking about all the people he's murdered and police are really trying to figure out if there is some connection between all of these men. So on May 17th, 1996, Gary pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, but his sentencing was actually put off for three years. Later that same year, in 1996, he pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of Albert Morris. In this case, he took a plea deal that benefited him by having the death penalty taken off the table as a possible sentence. He was given a life sentence in this case. Over 10 months passed before Gary took another plea deal to spare his life in the case of John Roberts. He pleaded guilty to first-degree murder, armed burglary, robbery with a deadly weapon, and grand theft. He was sentenced to three life terms plus five years for the grand theft. After receiving so many life sentences, Gary was never charged with the other murders. It wasn't until May of 1999 that a jury was finally selected for the penalty sentencing phase. Prosecutors laid out numerous aggravating factors in hopes of convincing the jury that the death penalty was a justified sentence for Gary. The factors they mentioned were that Gary had a violent criminal history, that Gary killed Jay during a robbery or attempted robbery, that Jay's murder was heinous, atrocious, or cruel, that Jay's murder was cold, calculated, and premeditated. The defense presented mitigating factors to try and convince the jury that Gary did not deserve the death penalty. And those included that Gary had an abusive childhood, he had a history of alcoholism, there was an absence of a true father figure in his life. They also said that Gary was very disturbed at the time of the murder, and he cooperated with the police when he was caught. They also noted that Gary was using drugs and alcohol when the murder actually took place. So part of the defense for Gary was that he was really drunk at the time of Jay's murder. 
but prosecutors said they don't believe that Gary was that drunk since he was able to stay awake drinking more. And then he waited for Jay to go to sleep. He's able to dig up this heavy stone outside and attack Jay, not to mention all the stuff he did after the murder, including driving to the store to get more alcohol and helping this homeless woman. Prosecutors told the jury that Jay was a gay man and that Gary didn't like gay men. They talked about how Gary had lost two girlfriends when they found out that he was a sex worker. Gary's defense immediately motioned for a mistrial on the grounds that the state had just brought up this inadmissible evidence. They weren't supposed to talk about any evidence that wasn't related to the aggravating factors. So the state said that the evidence of Gary's sexuality and his hatred for gay men was relevant for establishing the motive of Jay's killing. The trial judge overruled the defense's objection and the trial continued on. Prosecutors persisted with this line of accusation by having Detective Collins testify about a conversation he had with Gary regarding his sexuality. The defense objected again, and a sidebar conversation happened between both sides and the judge. The judge ended up telling the prosecutors that while he had given them some latitude, they couldn't continue to bring up Gary's sexuality as evidence of a motive. They could only discuss it as an aggravating factor, or they had to move on. The judge said, and I would agree with this, that just because Gary told the detective he was gay doesn't mean it has anything to do with the murder. Prosecutors insisted, though, that they could tie it all together, and the judge let them continue. After the detective had testified, an FBI agent took the stand and said that Gary had admitted to being a sex worker for the money, but that Gary told him he was not gay. He did say that Gary told him the story about his girlfriend's abortion and how upset he was about that. During closing arguments, the prosecution said that Jay died because he was a caring person who allowed a stranger into his home. And they also added in their closing that they believed Jay was killed because he was gay, even though they never linked the murder to that motive in the trial. On May 27th, the jury considered all of the information presented and recommended the death penalty as the sentence for Gary's crimes. The judge followed the jury's recommendation and sentenced Gary to death on September 6th, 1996. Gary did appeal his sentence to the Supreme Court of Florida. He said that the trial court was in error for allowing the prosecutors to focus on the anti-gay aspect of everything. He said their argument was irrelevant and they did not establish any connection between this alleged hatred towards gay men and the death of Jay Hinton. On August 27, 1998, the Supreme Court of Florida sided with him and ordered a new sentencing hearing. In the end, it would yield the same result. Gary was once again sentenced to death, and this time the sentence was affirmed by the Florida Supreme Court. In October of 2017, Gary filed a motion for post-conviction relief, alleging for the first time since his arrest that he suffered from an intellectual disability. Before the penalty phase and before he was sentenced to death in the first place, he actually underwent two psychiatric evaluations. Dr. McMahon found that Gary was, quote, probably not working with what we would say is an intact brain, end quote, and she said that he had some mild dysfunction, but it wasn't significant and that he had no signs of frontal lobe problems. She noted that Gary had a ton of anger and hostility towards other people and said that he was, quote, a reservoir of rage, end quote. Hmm. That, that yeah. I don't think I've ever heard anyone being no. described as that, but it feels very appropriate in the story. Yeah, for sure. Dr. McMahon said that Gary's impairments, however, didn't stem from any problem with his brain. He had poor impulse control and an impairment in empathy. 
Dr. McMahon didn't testify at the penalty phase because she would have had to talk about all six of the murders and not just the three that the jury was hearing about in that particular trial. Um, The defense obviously didn't want the jury to know about the other murders. So there was a second doctor that also did an evaluation on Gary. His name was Dr. Kropp, and he found that Gary had mild to moderate frontal lobe impairment and that he had memory deficits, some that were very significant. Dr. Kropp said that Gary actually claimed that he was bothered by the fact that he had killed six people who he said, quote, probably didn't deserve to die. In March of 2018, the governor of Florida at the time, who was Rick Scott, began clemency proceedings for Gary. On June 11, 2019, the clemency was denied and Gary's death warrant was actually signed. On August 13, 2019, Gary's motion for post-conviction relief based on intellectual disability was also denied. A little over a week after being denied post-conviction relief, the Supreme Court of the United States denied Gary's application for stay of execution. Gary would actually be executed later that same day. While the preparations for his execution were being made, he ate three cheeseburgers, french fries, and bacon. Gary also released a statement to the press. He said, quote, I'm sorry for all the pain and suffering I've caused. I never wanted this to be my life. You don't wake up one day and decide to become a serial killer, end quote. His words really didn't mean that much, though. When he was featured on an A&E series called The Killer Speaks, he said he thought the men deserved to die and he, quote, wanted to kill as many as he could before being caught, end quote. So, yeah, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth there, buddy. Right. Um, to say you never wanted to do this, but like I would have kept going. I, I if wanted I could, to. Yeah. Yeah. So at 10.58 p.m. on August 22nd, 2019, Gary was executed at the age of 57. He was the 99th person to be executed in Florida since 1976 when the death penalty was restored by the Supreme Court. Interestingly, Gary's crime bears a resemblance to the murders of another infamous Florida-based serial killer, Eileen Warnos. Eileen also hung around Florida highways, finding victims through sex work. Eileen killed a total of seven of her clients before being caught on the 4th of July in 1990. She spent 12 years on death row before being executed on October 9th, 2002. I was thinking that in this whole time in this story, yeah. there are so many parallels with the way they grew up and being abandoned and, you know, the abuse that they suffered, the sex work aspect of that, and literally where they were doing this is they're very, very similar. Yeah, yeah. It is really interesting. Um, I noticed it too right away, really. I was like, huh, this sounds really familiar. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, very, very interesting story. Um, we were saying in the beginning before we started recording how neither one of us really knew a lot about this case, this story. So that's always fun for me whenever we get to learn more about one that even we haven't really heard much about. And to be local to us, to be a serial killer, to have this execution have taken place just two or three years ago. I really, the name sounded sort of familiar, but a lot of these names actually sounded familiar in the story, but they're just names you hear a lot I guess I don't know Um, but yeah this is a really interesting one really sad for all the victims and their families it was just you know super gruesome ways to kill people and yeah even like the added aspect of him putting stuff down people's throats just man really really sad okay Melissa are we ready to turn the page and move on to last thing before we go for the week 
Absolutely. Oh, before we do, um, if you want a lighter episode, last week we did an episode on an art heist, the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum art heist. We had a really fun last thing before we go. We've gotten a lot of feedback on that. People enjoyed it. So if you don't normally listen to the like non-murdery ones, I think you'll really enjoy that one. That one was yeah, really fun. Yeah, that was really fun. Yeah, for sure. Okay, Melissa, so what are we doing this week for last thing before we go? Well, this was a uh, difficult episode with lots of terrible things that happened. So we tried to steer away from that as being any way connected to our last thing before we go. I talked last week. My daughter is turning 13. By the time this is released, she will be 13. I will have oh a teenager. My, my brain is just exploding. Um, but I thought it would be fun for Mandy and I to kind of relive our teen years, relive when we became 13. So yeah. I couldn't remember what year you turned 13. Turns out it was the year 2000, which was difficult <laughs> to hear. <laughs> I know you love telling me that. And I turned 13 in 1996, right? Is that what I told you? Because it was 1996. Yes. Okay. Yes. I was like, I might have said 1997. I don't know. <laughs> um, so we're going to tell each other some fun things from that year. I looked up stuff for Mandy. She looked up stuff for me. And um, yeah. So however you want to start it, we can start it. Okay. I'm well, happy to kick it off. Please kick Is that us what off, you mean? Melissa. Okay. <laughs> tell me I always want to be nice and let you go first, but I think normally you're like, just start it, Melissa. Yeah. You um, tell me what was popular or what's something, whatever you're going to tell me. And I'll tell okay. you if I knew about it or if I know okay. about it. <laughs> oh, I really hope you knew about this. Okay. Well, here's one. If I say this, what's up? What do you think of? What's up? I think of, I don't know. What's up? <laughs> You can keep doing it, but I don't. What's up? <laughs> the Budweiser commercials, the What's Up uh, oh, Budweiser beer commercials. Yeah, the yeah, Frogs. Yeah. yeah. It was a Super Bowl commercial, right? It was. It was like several of those kind of things. And it was the Budweiser beer, um, the Frogs. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Is okay. It? it was weird. <laughs> I, mean, well, well, yeah. I remember it. Hey, that's what it matters, right? We remember. Yeah, yeah. So I looked up some some things. First of all, when I first started looking up stuff about 1996, I got a lot of like just actual like real like boring data, right? Like about yeah, it was not a great year. <laughs> 2000 no, was a no. fantastic year in pop culture. Yeah, no, like I got like information like what was the average cost of a new house? Which, by the way, I just want to know what you think in 1996. What was the Ooh. average cost of a new home? What do you think? Because I was like, what? <laughs> I saw this. I'm gonna say. A uh, hundred thousand dollars? Close, actually, a hundred and eighteen thousand two hundred. Wow, that that's... was the average cost. Yeah, and that's just so crazy. Average monthly rent was five hundred and fifty-four dollars a month. Isn't that crazy? Yeah, some of these were blowing my mind when I was looking at them. But I found a whole sheet of different um, cost of living things in mm-hmm. the year that you turned thirteen. And um, looking at them, I was just like, wow, it's just um, really something. Cost of a uh, brand new car, sixteen thousand dollars. Just all kinds of craziness. And it doesn't feel like 1996 was that long ago. No, but I do feel like the hop from 1996 to 2000 is upsetting. And here's another reason that is the case. Do you remember this show, Who Wants to Marry a Multimillionaire? It was Um, one episode. I feel like I remember. Well, I don't. I I mean, I probably know the idea. It's on like all the list of like the worst shows, reality shows of all time. Of course. (laughs) It's where literally uh, this was this was the guy who produced The Bachelor, who went on to produce The Bachelor. This was like his big idea. Literally a stranger, uh, Darva Conger, goes on and meets Rick Rockwell. He's like supposed to be some famous comedian and really funny millionaire guy. He wasn't. 
but um they ended up getting married like legally getting wow. married and uh had never met never saw each other it's it's like married at first sight before and married at first sight actually uses like uh experts to pair people together and this is just like who do you think looks hot behind that silhouette (laughs) (laughs) and that's what happened wow all right all righty okay melissa i have one maybe that you might be able to actually guess on i'm curious to hear what your guesses are okay so what do you think were the five most popular tv shows from 1996 okay Ooh. okay let's go seinfeld that's on the list. That's number two. Okay. Ooh, what would be more popular than Seinfeld? Um, I'm thinking all NBC shows. Let's go Friends. Let's Friends go... is also on the list, and they are all NBC shows. By oh, the way, all five okay. are NBC shows. But yes, Let's Friends go... is on the list. Friends <laughs> is number four. Thankfully, it's not higher. Oh, thank you. Frasier <laughs> is going to be one I'm going to give. It's not. Okay, ER? Yes, that's number one. Oh, okay. And um, hmm. Okay. Give me a clue. I really want to get it. One more. Um, how we have alliteration with Moms and Murder, Mandy and Melissa. This show was also someone's name, but it's like not an alliteration title. No. Um, not Will and Grace. I don't know. But is it? Something I've literally never heard of. Suddenly Susan. Oh, Suddenly Susan. It had Brooke Shields. It had um, Kathy oh. uh, Griffin in it. It was actually pretty funny. Oh, well, yeah, it's number three. The last one, number wow. five, was The Naked Truth. No concept of that. No recollection of that. Don't know what that one was. Yeah, didn't. No, does not register. Suddenly Susan was actually <laughs> fun. I think it was only, I think it was just like a couple seasons. So Mandy. Oh, you did really good on those. I'm, thanks. I'm, yeah, you knew a lot. Uh, more than I should. In 2000, <laughs> can you think of a game show that was super popular? And when I say super popular, I mean it's on, I have like a list of the top 20. It's on one two three what five times it was a monday show tuesday wednesday thursday friday and it was a uh game show who wants to be a millionaire you got it five different nights can you yeah i do remember that being on all the time why were we so obsessed with that five times a week (laughs) is so excessive and it's not even like that exciting if you watch like that show it's not even that exciting it was exciting when the first guy won and he called his dad and was like, hey, dad, I don't need to use my lifeline. Just want to tell you I'm about to win a million dollars, which cocky, cocky, but it worked. But besides that, like, come on, I'm tired of these people losing and taking up every night of the week. And this is I don't want to watch DVR. other people win a million dollars. Yeah. See, Mandy's like, I'll, I'll play. <laughs> Who wants to watch me win a million dollars? Oh, that's a good game. <laughs> And it's just a, it's a group of people like raising their hand whether or not they'd like to see you win a million. <laughs> I'd raise my hand for you. That's good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right, Melissa. Let's switch to music of 1996. Okay. Popular musicians. There's not a numbered list here, but there okay. are a few, of course, that I am sure that you won't be surprised by and some that I'm sure you'll be like, oh, maybe. And then some that I don't even really know who these are. So okay. obviously, who was the best? Who was the biggest in the late 90s, mid um, to late 90s? NSYNC, Backstreet Boys, one of those. Britney Spears. Yeah, they were great. But what about what about the Spice Girls? <laughs> really? We were still doing that in 2000? 
No, Wait, no, I'm graduating. Oh, never mind. That's <laughs> you're not graduating. Crap. You're you're turning 13. <laughs> I graduated in 2001. That was my. I got myself totally confused on this. Okay, Spice Girls. Yeah, that sounds about right. Really? So you also had like Mariah, Eric Clapton. Were you what? a big Eric Clapton fan? <laughs> Why was Eric Clapton doing anything in the top 20 during 1996? <laughs> Snoop Dogg is on the list. Fine, acceptable. Jamiroquai? Jamiroquai, yes. Qua? <laughs> I think. Why? I don't know. Um, Blur? Have you ever heard of Blur? Blur? Is that the band or the song? I don't know. No, musician. It's a musician. No. Does not compute. No. no. I sound like I, a computer every time I say that. <laughs> Robot. I cut, my, I cut my list off there. But yeah, some popular musicians. I feel like I wasn't surprised by any of those because I also like – I listened to music in the 90s, so it's like I knew that Mariah okay. Carey was big in the 90s. You True. Know. Wasn't you, that exciting? If you've seen Behind the Music, <laughs> you knew Mariah Carey was uh, famous then. So my top five for 2000, I'm telling you, Mandy, when you were coming of age in 2000, it was the best year of music and TV and movies and everything. Except this. The number one song in 2000 was Breathe by Faith Hill. What's wrong with that song? Mandy, you did not work in a public uh, supermarket because they play that song all the time. Like even now when I hear it, it just like makes me mad because I would hear it oh, so yeah. much. It's just yep. one you hear too many times. Yeah. Uh, other ones were I Knew I Loved You, Terrible Song by Savage Garden. Oh, no, I hate that one. Right? Uh, Everything You Want by Vertical Horizon, fine. Um, but my favorite one on here was the Thong Song. It was number four. Oh, Cisco. Yes. Cisco. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Isn't that crazy to even think about? I remember when that music video came out and like I was so young and like watching it, but now i if my kids were to be like trying to watch that, I would be like, Oh my gosh, your eyes, turn it off. <laughs> I think I learned about thongs when I was thirteen because some boy in my class said he could see my underwear line and I was like, What are you talking about? Why did you know that? And doesn't everyone have one? And that's when I learned that everyone did not in fact have oh, one. Oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't have Cisco's thong song to help me. So good Aww. for you. <laughs> had to wait four more years okay so here's a couple of things that might blow your mind because it doesn't seem like it is that long ago I mean it just seems like these things should have happened longer ago than 1996 but here's a few crazy things that happened in 1996 okay DVDs launched in Japan <sighs> such a I'm so old. Okay, isn't keep that going. crazy? Okay, here we go. Internet Explorer three web browser was released. So Explorer three. I don't know what version we're on now. The website Ask Jeeves was formed in 1996. Ask Jeeves is the reason I ask Google the way I do because you always had to <laughs> ask too. a question. <laughs> me too. Yeah, me too. So here's something interesting. I actually never even knew. But apparently it was huge news, technology news in 1996. I saw it on more than one website. I guess they successfully cloned a sheep in yeah. 1996. It was named Dolly, and it was the first mammal to ever be successfully cloned. Wow, 1996? Yeah, yeah, 1996. Um, and last thing, what do you think was the most popular toy, like kid's toy in 1996? What was the big rage at Christmas of 1996? Was it Beanie Babies? I just want to do No. Do you want to um, guess one more time? Furby? No, that's too recent. Um, no. Nope. No, I don't know. It was Tickle Me Elmo. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, yeah. My mom was not going to stand in line for that. Also, I was 13, so that was <laughs> I, I didn't think you would want that at that age, but maybe you did. Maybe, maybe. you wanted a little doll to tickle. Who knows? Interesting. Okay. It looks like 1996 is a very long time ago in 2000 had some great hits some real bangers um so congratulations <laughs> you came of age during a great time even like j-lo and that green dress was in 2000 like oh jennifer yeah. aniston and brad pitt got married in 2000 like what a year what a year what a time to be alive <laughs> what a time to turn 13 for sure yeah yeah I want to go back to the 1996 um, prices of things, though. That sure, that would great. be nice. Yeah, <laughs> it was like that. a loaf of bread was like 69 cents. I was like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, really. Yeah. All righty. Well, I think that was it for this week. We've done enough. <laughs> All right, guys. We will be back next week. Same time, same place. New story. Have a great week. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Moms and Murder podcast. Make sure to check back with us next week for a new episode. You can also find us at momsandmurder.com where you can connect with us via social media. Please make sure you subscribe and give us five stars because giving us four stars would be a crime. Thanks so much.